This is episode number 22, Creating a Meaningful Life with Pamela Cordano. Welcome. My name is Ola Glohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to make a brief announcement regarding our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar journey that you are? Well, this is your chance to do so. Come join us for a day of networking, workshops, and insightful speakers, including Jim Bricker, Peter Stropel, Anne Heffron, Adele Harris, Joshua Banks, and myself included. For more information, go to overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Now, let's get back to our guests. October 15th, 2014 the day she received her diagnosis. It was thyroid cancer. She said, I've been working with cancer for almost 20 years and I had never had it before. So to get diagnosed with it was shocking. A condition that is oftentimes kept as a secret. But for Pamela Cordano, it was different. It was an opportunity to learn things she didn't already know. Without further ado, please welcome Pamela Cordano. Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't mind, I would like to start off by having you give a little bit of an intro about who you are and some of the reasons of why you got adopted. I was um, born to an 18-year-old mentally ill woman, um, and she wasn't in love with my birth father. So um, they, they actually, they met in college in Florida and they had a brief romance that was really important to him, but not not super important to her. So when she got pregnant, uh, she didn't want to stay with him or have a baby with him. So she moved to California and went to one of those homes for um, pregnant women and had me at, at 18. And she had an interest in keeping me. Uh, she had been orphaned herself at six months. Her mother had been orphaned, and her grandmother had been orphaned. So I was the fourth ran in the family generation. Somehow. Yeah, it ran in the family. I was the the fourth one. So she really wanted to keep me, and she tried really hard in her own ways, but she lived alone in an apartment in San Jose, California, and she worked full-time at Lockheed. And so she didn't have child care. She didn't have money. She was bipolar. Uh, seeing a psychiatrist, and this was in 1965. So when she would go to work, even though I was a newborn, she would leave me alone in the apartment for about nine hours at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think about that a lot. Like I can't imagine what that was like for me being so young and dependent and her not, you know, her not being there. And then when she would come home, I think she was exhausted and overwhelmed and I would be crying so then she would um, shake me and hit me. And luckily for me, she had a psychiatrist that she trusted. So she would tell him 
what was happening. And three times he had me removed from her care. Um, he called the police and the police removed me. Um, but he was still able to keep enough of a connection with her that she continued to talk with him. So um, the first time I was removed, I was one month old and I went to a foster family for a month. And then I was uh, given back to her. And then the same thing continued. Um, and she told the psychiatrist and he, he had me removed again. And I went to my second foster family for about a month and then returned to her. This is before CBS. Um, mm. I'm not sure if I said that. Uh, and then the third time he had me removed again and I was taken to a shelter. And then at that point, whoever at the, at the county convinced her that I would be better off with a different family. So she uh, agreed to relinquish me for adoption. Was was the uh, psychiatrist aware of the things that were going on in the household as far as, you know, the abuse and things like that? Or was that not yeah. um, told at all? No, she told him because she she was worried about it herself. Um, and so she told him that she was leaving me alone and then shaking me and hitting me and that she couldn't handle my crying. And so, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm 52 now and he's become a much, I, mean, I don't know his name, but he's become a much more prominent figure for me in the story because he was a good Samaritan and he went out of his way to protect me and he probably saved my life. And so more recently, I've been thinking about him a lot and feeling gratitude that he was paying attention. And who knows how many cases he had. He was probably mm -hmm. working for the county because she didn't have money. So uh, he might have been completely busy the way psychiatrists can be. And he still um, risked his relationship with her to protect me three times. So, um, yeah, he's become very figural for me in the story. And I appreciate him. Like he's like a bit of a hero for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's, wow, that's it's interesting to hear that. I, I, I can somewhat relate to not um, maybe not abuse that you've experienced at a young age, but I, I went through similar things in the orphanage. Um, I lived in the orphanage for about three years in Russia from nine until twelve years old, and. I can tell you that, you know, it's it's systems like that that oftentimes are not um, regulated as much. Mm -hmm. So, like, the the things like physical abuse and mental abuse happen a lot more often. And mm -hmm. you also get to a point, which you, you might have as well, that um, once you – either you get abused so many times or you see other people get abused, that – speaking up is no longer an option it just completely mm. leaves your mind you know in in my case i fortunately it only happened to me um a couple times but i've witnessed other people that lived in that system so many different times that it got to a point when my sister would visit me on the weekends and um during the week sometimes and i felt afraid to tell her mm. about those things because I knew that if I were to speak up, then there's that possibility of her actually trying to make a change. Mm -hmm. And in my eyes, the change would have been to go to the director and, you know, point out the problems. But then if that happens, then <laughs> as soon as the visitation is over, then the director 
we'll obviously take action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it was which might have been which might have made things worse. Exactly, which could have made mm-hmm. them even worse, and that, and that's the mentality that I went with the whole time of living in that system, and I've noticed that to be a common theme also for those who have been uh, from one foster home to another, is that you know there there are certainly good situations of when the family does take care of you and and things do work out, but then there are also those that you go from one foster home to another and the abuse and all these other problems repeat themselves mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah. And you just, yeah. yeah. So, so it's interesting how, um, you know, people deal with it. It's, it's good to hear that in your case, someone else was willing to speak up for you, especially, um, you know, at an age where you probably, um, didn't have the courage or the power to speak up for yourself. Yeah, because I, be I was still an infant, so I couldn't have I couldn't have protected myself. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, without his stepping in, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I know as a therapist, I've I've had to call CPS, and it's always awful to call CPS because somebody's going to be, um, either upset or angry or fire me or whatever. Um, but I have to do it. It's part of the it's part of my legal obligation, and. So to think about him before CPS, that he was willing to stick his neck out and do that for me and take the time to do it, it's it's become meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have, have you been able to reconnect with him or your <laughs> your family? Oh, my family, yes. Um, and I heard all about this from my birth mother. Um, I, but but no, I and I was I was able to get some reports, but I I don't know his name and I can't find his name in any records. So um, he's just this mystery. <laughs> good Samaritan doctor to me. <laughs> what, what is your relationship with your, with your mother, if you don't mind us sharing? Oh, it's, it's, we're not in touch anymore. I'm, I found her when I was 25, and um, I think it was hard from the start because, you know, she's bipolar, and she had a gambling addiction, and uh, she had a lot of problems. Um, but the, the hardest thing was that she she was making frequent, pretty dramatic suicide attempts. And so she, she lives in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And I would get phone calls from the doctors at the emergency room because they had – she has other daughters, but they had my number. And they would call and say, your mother's in the hospital again. She did this or she did that. And I started feeling like I was having to be a social worker with her, and I just didn't have the energy and also, the, the the deal breaker for me was, I think how old, I was in my 30s, and I said to her, um, you know, I just want to have five years with you where you don't try to kill yourself so that I can know that for five years I have you. Hmm. And she said, I can't, I can't promise you that. And so I, it was just too painful for me to, to stick in there with her. I, I just. I felt like I was going to be abandoned again by her at any time. So, um, and it was just, I, it was like a, a burden really to be, mm-hmm. to be in relationship with her. So, and uh, she, knowing she, what you yeah. knew in the time length that you had. Yeah. And with her, with her many suicide attempts, she was getting more and more disabled and having electric shock treatment and, um, becoming a really faded version of herself. So, I th- I think she's still alive, but we're not in touch hmm. for for a long time now. 
do you remember the process that it, it, you went through in terms of finding her and any advice that you may have for others who are looking mm -hmm. for their birth parents? Yeah, I mean, I found her before the internet was happening. So here's the, here's the funny part about finding her and finding my biological father, and that is that both of their last names were Jones. <laughs> so I had to find hmm. two Joneses in America. You know, we used to have Which is an like every other person. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy. But, but you know, we used to have a, a strong underground system, and I'm kind of out of touch with it because it's been almost 30 years now. But what, what I had heard was that statistically a lot of women who relinquish a child get married within the next year or two after that, which surprised me. But sure enough, I went looking in the records for the state of California, and I found in a San Francisco court like record or document that she had been married a year after I was relinquished. And so I found her married name. That was jo Her married name was Jones. And then I there was an underground person working for the DMV who was supporting adoptees who were trying to find their biological families. And so I gave her, I think I, think I found the marriage certificate and I got her birth date, her married name, and then the DMV person found me her current address and phone number. So I just called her up one night hmm. at her house. What was that like? What was that kind of first <laughs> conversation like? Yeah, I was uh, I was terrified. I, I sat on the floor because I was afraid I was going to fall over. So I thought if I was already on the floor, I could fall very far. <laughs> I had it planned out. I just said, um, does March 29th, 1965 mean something to you? And then she started crying and called me by my birth name, which was Diana Lynn. And she was very receptive and said that she'd had a picture of me in their living room this whole time and that um, her family knew about me. Uh, so she was very welcoming. And then she, she flew from Arkansas to the Bay Area where I lived uh, to visit me for the first time. And I was like a stone. I, I was uh, terrified and just like a stone which is, I think, how I was when she, when I said goodbye to her as an infant. I'd stopped crying or smiling after the abuse, and I was like a stone back then. And then when I met her, I was again like a stone. And uh, she talked a lot more about her experience with giving me up and all that than I did about my experience. And uh, it, it was, it wasn't an easy, an easy connection. It was. I think I just felt kind of constrained the whole time. And and then when these suicide attempts were happening, I just I couldn't I couldn't hang in there. Hmm. Yeah. Do do you think it's it sounds like that's a good portion of why um you said, you know, you were afraid or constrained in some ways. Um was a fear of rejection was that also part of it as well and abandonment mm -hmm. I'm assuming. You know, I, I think that before I met her, I was certainly afraid of that, but she was so welcoming and having been orphaned herself, she was, she could, I think she could understand something about my need to find her. Mm -hmm. But I think when I got to know her in person, I was more afraid that she wasn't healthy enough to hold space for me or to be there for me and mm -hmm. that it was going to be a one way street. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have the energy <laughs> to go that route. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's a hard one to 
um, process of it. You know, for me, it was it was slightly different. I I came here at an age where I fully understood who my family was. Um, I had a relationship with my mom and my sister and cousins and everyone else who lived in Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's still one of the one of the things that I thought of recently is that if I were to go back, you know, what would that experience be like? Um, Because it seems that the the I guess the emotional roller coaster that you go through when you first meet them is um, very difficult. But for me, I imagine it, you know, I don't know how it'd be like, I don't know if it would be difficult or easy, because I was adopted at such a old age, where Mm -hmm, I was able mm -hmm. to process the things that did happen. And I was already kind of, I guess you could say starting my life and developing my identity and the type of person that I wanted to become. So it's still, I guess, a question mark for me as far as what that experience would be like. Um, I'm sure it would bring a lot of flashbacks of things that happened, good and bad, and that may be something that I I don't think I'll be able to simulate here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and something that I may just have to go through just to really experience of what what that experience would be like yeah yeah it hmm. is different isn't it that you have more explicit you have the explicit memories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah um i want to dive into the topic of today which is healing and uh-huh. i'd like to start off with the section when um you spoke about cancer mm-hmm. yeah. and one one of the things that i uh, found out was that you found out that you have cancer Describe to us the, that reaction or feeling that you had. Yeah, that was in 2014, October 15th. I remember the day. And the strange thing about it was I had been working with cancer for almost 20 years, and I'd never had it before. So to have to, to get diagnosed with it was really shocking. And um, I knew so well so much about supporting people with cancer and their families, but... Um, to get it was was a different thing and I remember where I was it was like time slowed down like like trauma you know time mm-hmm. slowed down I actually had to pull the car over because the doctor called me um, to tell me over the phone and I called my husband and we just went into this kind of um, fight-or-flight mode where we were searching out you know hospital systems and doctors and who it was thyroid cancer and the problem was thyroid cancer is supposed to be like, they call it the good cancer because it's so treatable. It's extremely treatable. But what I found out was it had spread to my neck outside of the thyroid area, and mm-hmm. that made it much more dangerous or potentially dangerous, and it 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 changed the picture. So I was, um, I was terrified, and my husband was terrified, and our kids were teenagers, and so I just... Uh, put everything on hold and just went went on the search for the best, best, best doctor around. And I found who I thought she was, who and she, she was wonderful at UCSF. And I started aggressively getting myself into her care. So um, I became very single-minded and um, I, I took about three months off work and I had I was I was scheduled for a very um, 
an awful surgery called a neck dissection where they go they go layer by layer in your neck looking for cancer that's gone you know that's spread into your neck oh, wow but once they got in there once the surgeon got into my thyroid and took that out she felt that the the area was uh, clear enough that they could let there be um, an area in my lymph nodes that was that showed cancer but not treat it. So I, I ended up not having the neck dissection. I just had my thyroid out, and now I just get tested uh, regularly to make sure it doesn't change. And so it's been three and a half years, and so far so good. And I, I feel positive about it. Like I feel like I feel like she treated it, and I did make some changes to my my uh, the, my diet and the way I live to try to um, support my own health and immune functioning mm-hmm. and things like that once this happened. So so that happened, but yeah. But it, so it, was, it was quite interesting to get it myself. Um, yeah. I, I obviously can't relate as I, you know, I, I haven't had um, any signs of it, but I, I can say that I've had a couple people within my family, my uncles, um, who had cancer. I, I can't tell you the exact forms, but I know that they've had um, mm-hmm. some stages of it, and so it, it's a, it's a bit harder to relate from the outsider perspective. And um, so one of the things I've always been curious about is that when you get cancer, it obviously depends on on the stage and the type that you have. Mm-hmm. But in your case, when you got it, where did you look for that hope or motivation mm. to keep going? Was that something uh-huh. that you internally had, or you know? A support group that was able to provide that for you like how mm. how do you keep going in a situation like that yeah well so you know by the time I got it I had already been a therapist for a long time and I'd learned a lot about my own healing and I mean I have to say in my case with the cancer I had um, it was nothing compared to adoption <laughs> you know honestly and I've seen of course many people with terrible cancer that I think would really um, overwhelm and push me to my limit. But in my case, it was it was really it was a challenge, and I had to address it. But I was thinking about this, and um, one of the things I did was I tried to see cancer as an opportunity because I I'm interested in the human experience in general. You know, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. with people. I'm fascinated with resilience and with how people um, grow their ability to be resilient and and have a fuller life. And so mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted to go through the cancer experience and look at it as an opportunity to learn things I didn't know about. So one example was there was a guy in Sacramento who was an expert at uh, biopsies and. He was like the guy, and he actually was a teacher at UCSF, which has a wonderful cancer center. And he he was just a very well-known guy, even you know all over the all over Northern California. So when he saw my strange thyroid, he said, "You know, this is really an odd-looking situation. Would you do me a favor, and would you let some medical students come in and could we could we meet for about two hours and could I let them work on you and practice biopsies on you and and teach them with your thyroid because they'll learn a lot from from you and I said of course you know like I was happy to 
to have there be a way that I could help someone else. And mm -hmm. I knew that would make me feel better. So sure enough, this happened and, and it was a little bit painful with some of the bio, some of the, the stuff they were doing and they were newer at it. But um, what I didn't expect was do this doctor, his name was Dr. Abley. He was so grateful that I offered to, to do that or that I said yes to his request that he gave me his personal cell phone number and he said that he wanted to personally see me through my entire cancer experience, which included him writing a very um, thoughtful and thorough letter to my surgeon saying that he that I was in his care and that he wanted to really be included in every decision that was made and be part of the whole thing. And that that because because his name was so big in the area and he used to teach at UCSF, she knew who he was, and I felt like that increased the quality of care I got. Hmm. So it was like this it was like this example of giving and then receiving that was happening um, in various ways. That's awesome. So that, that's yeah, that's that good to hear that happy. other people once again were looking out for you and <laughs> yeah. with, with something like this, you know, you don't it's it's already a costly enough procedure. You don't really want to um, experiment that much. I bet with different treatments. Right, right. Hmm. And another thing happened where some people treat cancer like it's this big secret and they don't want to talk about it publicly, but I didn't want to do that. So I have a nice Facebook community, and I decided that here and there as I learned things, um, you know, trying to treat this as an opportunity for learning and growth, I would share little tidbits on my Facebook page. And one one day I said something like, um, "Am I allowed to say bad words on your podcast?" Uh, or go not? ahead. I can. Can I say the f word? Or sure, no? absolutely. Okay. So like, what one day I posted something like, "Today I keep vacillating between gratitude and fuck," and so <laughs> within hours there was a ding dong at my door, and I I opened the door, and there were these two beautiful jars that were sitting there. They had like ribbon around them and little signs on them. So I brought them in the house and they were full of little pieces of paper. And one jar said, um, gratitude. And the other <laughs> jar said, fuck. And they, they had these, these little pieces of paper that went with fuck or gratitude inside of them. And it was from a stranger. Like it was from a friend of a friend who had had breast cancer and she had just been paying attention and she read my post and then she went and made me those jars. And I really couldn't believe it. And I just thought to myself, you know, there's just something so beautiful about sharing something authentically and vulnerably and then mm -hmm. having the world respond. And that, that was part of the, the, that was really the best part of my cancer experience was that kind of thing happening <laughs> again and again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I want to I dive into a couple things from that. One of the things you, you mentioned was resilience. Mm-hmm. That's a so that's a topic I've been trying to explore um for a little while now because you know whenever one of the things one of the questions I face is that when pe when I tell people my experience or the journey I went through I always get asked you know how what does it mean to be resilient how how mm -hmm. did you become that and it's a little bit harder for me to to for me to express because I think it's um you know, it's a process. It's it's a mixture of things. It mm -hmm. was my determination, my persistence to keep going through all the challenges. Um, what does resilience mean to you? Mm -hmm. 
I think resilience to me means um, um, over time increasing my sense of connection to life itself and connection to to my experience of being alive and to the larger world. And so it's like it's like um, when when challenges happen or bad things happen, it's recovering more and more quickly and getting back into that sense of feeling connected to the larger world and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And I think that before when I was younger, I think that you know when, when bad things would happen, I would fall into a deep, dark pit, and it would take me a really long time to get out of it. It might even take something special happening for me to get out of it. But now, I've learned enough about myself and about the world and about what works and what doesn't that that I I don't stay in the dark pit too long anymore, and I I really feel much better when I'm feeling connected to the larger world. What What does it mean to be connected? Like how how does one do that? <laughs> How does one do that? Like, okay, so I mean, it's when I feel, I think this goes for everybody, but I'll, I can speak for myself. Like when I don't feel well emotionally, I'm in, I'm in more of a contracted state. Like I'm not really seeing beyond myself. I'm in my, I'm sort of stuck in my own unpleasant state of mind. And I'm I'm kind of more involved in self-preservation and conservation than I am in anything beyond myself. And usually there's a story looping around in my head about how I've been wronged or how life sucks or something mm-hmm. like that. Some old familiar loops. And um, so so for me, resilience is about moving into an expanded state of mind, like. I feel better when I'm if I'm walking down the street, if I'm smiling at strangers or if I'm looking for opportunities to help somebody if they need it or if I'm happy to connect with somebody that I'm next to in line or um, just knowing that I'm part of a larger world, that I'm not an isolated orphan, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like a castaway, you know. I'm I'm actually part of the larger picture and I I – I matter and everybody else matters. And so, so it's more, I mean, even in my eyes, like if I'm in a contracted state of mind, I'm not really looking outside of myself, but when I start to move back into expansion, I see, Oh, there's blossoms on the trees cause it's spring right now. And the giant clouds in my city are quite beautiful. And, um, I, I even think about how I could make fun happen. Like, Oh, I could surprise my daughter today with, a card or a little gift or I, I just start thinking beyond my own self to to how to have fun in the world does that make sense oh absolutely i think okay. a lot of that sounds like it ties to or can tie to law of attraction mm. you know just thinking like because that that's kind of how i approached um i love your mindset by the way because I, that's how i've started to approach life um many many years ago and that is you know if you if you think positively positive things do happen mm-hmm. if you have negative emotions then that's what you're going to attract so and at first i remember when i came across this um theory and practice i didn't fully believe it um you know i thought it was just like 
okay, people are just trying to be nice and trying to cheer you up when, when you're down. And then I started to pay attention more and more to the things that I was doing. For example, you know, sit in traffic. And <laughs> this happens to all of us. We sit in traffic. Um, LA is probably one of the best examples of this. You sit in traffic for an hour or two hours mm-hmm. to move a mile or two two miles, whatever it is. And everyone constantly honks and they all get upset at each other because, you know, the car in front of them is not moving fast enough. And then so when I when I was in those situations, I began to think I was like, okay, if I'm thinking like that, then those are the things I'm going to attract. If I know that this is just part of life and part of, you know, everyday trip, then that's what it is. And Mm -hmm. just so that's how I started to deal with things is just start to accept things as they were and not really um, think about them in negative terms. And I can say, you know, from my experience, I've experienced a huge, huge transition Mm-hmm. That when I started to, when you truly do think um, that things will work out and you stop doubting yourself, you stop believing, you start believing in the process and the things that you're doing in life, mm-hmm. then after a little while, it do, it won't happen overnight. In most cases, things do like turn out. Yeah. The way yeah. you planned or even better. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think that that more connected and expanded expanded state of mind is actually more of our um, our real selves. Like, I think that when we start experiencing ourselves as being disconnected and um, broken and in that dark pit, I think our I think our thinking is distorted at that point. Like, it, it's more true that we're all interconnected and that. Mm-hmm that what we do impacts others and, and that when we're kind to others, kindness comes back. It's more, it's more the truth, you know? So in that, in that way, we have the truth more on our side mm-hmm. <laughs> when, you know, like one thing that I did when I, when I met my surgeon for the first time in San Francisco was it was Halloween and I, I wore a costume and I brought her, <laughs> I wore a costume and I brought her, her staff cookies. And mm. I did it to just say, you know, like, Hey, let's make this fun. You know, like let, let, this is serious, but let's make it fun too. Mm-hmm. It, it, the staff responded really well, and that you know that made me, me happy. And the other thing I did was after it was all over, I wrote her a letter and I said, "I want to thank you for every single high school class you took in math and science that prepared you to get into <laughs> whatever you went to, and then." how all those hours you spent studying for your tests and all the courses you took and all the knowledge you gained that got you into medical school. And then, you know, I just went through all, went through all these details, just thanking her for every little thing she did that got her to the point that she would be the one who could do such a great surgery on me. And mm-hmm. I just, I wanted her to be seen, to feel seen and acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And that made, it made me happy to, to give that to her. You know, That's... I think we, we feel happier when we give things to other people. Then. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I've always believed in the mindset that you have to elevate others before you can elevate yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. and, and, and it really is true. If you look at some of the more successful people, which are, however you define success, um, that's what they've done mm-hmm. is that, mm-hmm. you know, people like some people, people like yourself, what you're doing, you're not putting yourself first, you're putting others first. Um, 
I'm sure you're taking care of yourself to make sure that you can help others. Mm-hmm. But I truly do believe that it you have to give before you can yeah. get. Yeah, yeah. What what is um another section of your work? I know it, it talks a lot about uh, meaning. Mm-hmm. How t- there are two questions that I have about it. The first one is how does one find it? What, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Okay. To, what does it I mean love to this do question. meaningful work? Okay, so how does one find it? Mm-hmm. So I think meaning is available to all of us all the time. And I think that when we feel like our lives are not meaningful or we're lacking meaning in our lives, I think that we're the ones that have become disconnected from it. But I think I think there's an abundance of meaning around us all the time that's just waiting for us. So, um, for example... I think about, so, so you might have read that Viktor Frankl is one of my heroes, mm-hmm. and he wrote the book called Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote the book in 11 days after he got out of three years of being imprisoned in the Holocaust, and he was studying how could he retain a sense of meaning while he had lost his dignity, and he had mm-hmm. lost his family and everybody, um, and even his future, potentially, and his health. So his book really resonated with me as an adoptee because I felt like, okay, here's a guy who really understands something about being destitute and being despairing. And to to me, meaning is the opposite of despair and despair is someone without a sense of meaning. So I think of meaning as being available to all of us. Like we can experience things that are meaningful to us through our senses. And we experience meaning through things we do like our work or like an art and we experience meaning through the people and the places and the things that we love and through important stories from our past and through the legacy we want to leave in the future to either people or to the earth or whatever. And also through attitudes that are important to us when we encounter adversity or life's limitations, like attitudes like kindness or generosity or courage. So I think meaning's always there and meaning feels like energy and vitality and connection to something beyond ourselves. So meaning to me is like self-transcendence. And so mm. meaningful work is work that actually transcends oneself and reaches the larger world in some way or another. Like, um, I went to my first symphony. This is so embarrassing. I'm 50, 52, <laughs> but I went to my first symphony Monday night and Joshua Bell was playing the violin and I was just, enchanted by the, the the music that they played and how they played it because they were so happy and there was it's like they couldn't help but smile and they were they, they were almost like delighted with themselves and it was just beautiful and so they reached this whole audience and we all there were there were like thousands of people in the audience and we gave them a standing ovation before the intermission and at the end oh, also wow. because we were so riveted and to me that's meaningful work because they're they're giving us an experience that's just beautiful. Uh-huh. And, you know, then there's there's meaning. Any kind of work that reaches beyond ourselves and transcends us to the larger world, to me, is meaningful work. Hmm. How do you maintain the motivation with something like this? Because, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing, especially for my generation, is that um, people oftentimes say that, they haven't found their purpose or they haven't mm. found meaning. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I try to tell is that, you know, me, just like you said, meaning is around you. 
-hmm. you just have to and it's not even about really looking deep it's more so i think just um stopping what you're doing and then just paying attention to -hmm. the things that you are doing now i think once you find that meeting like in my case you know the the way that i found this meeting was that i just looked at the entire experience that i had and i figured out the things that have helped me transform as a person from one stage to another and that's how i was able to come up with you know the concept for overcoming odds Mm. um yeah how how do you keep going then so you know Mm -hmm. you, you figured this out in your case, you figured out the meaning and the work that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. What what is like? What is that? How? What is that in between step? Like how how do you how do you get enough momentum and motivation mm. to finally say, okay, I I know what I want to do, but how do I do this? So do you mean, let me make sure I understand your question. Like, mm-hmm. are you, are you saying like, how, how, like, how do I replenish like the energy to keep going in a meaning, in meaningful work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I kind of think that it just starts to snowball. Like, you know, I used to work with most anybody, like I'd work with couples or teenagers or stressed out people or whoever. But what I started to realize with time and like you said, by with paying attention is that the place I do really well at work is when people have faced a tragedy and the old life that they had is now over because they can never go back to it. And now they have to, they're in an in-between place and they have to find a new life somehow. So I'm, I'm, I'm like a person that walks on this little bridge with them to try to find the new life. And we can't always find it right away. Sometimes we have to just hang out in the ruins of their old life. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about like when people become paralyzed or when someone's child dies or someone gets stage four incurable cancer or whatever, and or they lose the love of their life in a tragic accident or whatever, the, these kinds of things. And so now I really like to work in those places. So more and more of my clients are really those people. It's not so much like, Oh, can you see my son? He's got a B in English and he needs to get A's. You know, I don't, I don't care about that stuff so much. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's like a momentum or like a snowballing that happens. And then like meeting Anne Heffron and we started coming up with this idea of ad- adoptee retreats and, and coming up with creative ways to, to help people find reserves of, of life inside of them that could help them live in new ways or connect with their, their deeper selves and who they want to be in the world in new ways. Or another, another thing I'm doing that is meaningful to me that's sustaining me and snowballing my life right now is there's a psychologist that's in my building with me and she and I both have a passion for traveling. Traveling has been one of the most healing things I've ever done. I I can, if I put traveling versus therapy, I'm not sure which one's more healing. (laughs) So she and I, she and I are planning a trip in October for 10 women to walk the Camino de Santiago in kind of like a, a non-religious pilgrimage. Um, and we're going to walk for eight days in a row, and then we're going to meet up with an artist in Santiago and integrate our experience. And the trip just filled up right away, and it's super exciting to hmm. me. So like that to me is really fun. So I guess it, I guess it's, clar- it's getting clarity about what, what is really particularly meaningful to us, like the mm-hmm. kind of 
work we wanted to do. And then things just start to, I don't know, things have just been popping up, like meeting Anne and this Spain trip. And I, I mean, I have like a, a hundred more ideas <laughs> that are just sitting on the, like waiting in line, like pick me, pick me and mm-hmm. things I want to do. So I think a snowball thing starts to happen and we start to figure out like, what's the stuff in our life that is just taking up space that we might be good at, but it's not really enlivening us. And then what's the stuff that we really feel passionate about and we want to do more of, and then how do we make more room for that? Even if we disappoint some people, how do we go more in the direction of our vitality and passion? Mm -hmm. And be more fulfilled. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell, Tell me a little bit about the concept or how you guys came about adoptee retreat. What is, what is the, what is, how did it come about? You know, what's the vision behind it? Well, when I met Anne, and I think when she met me, there was kind of this uh, amazing, almost like a soulmate sort of feeling because I don't, I don't have a lot of adopted friends. I have more now since I've met Anne, but uh, I don't have a lot of adopted friends, and I, I haven't really identified myself as being like a person in the adopt the adoptee community until just very recently. So, um, there was something about Anne that I saw that, that that was like resonated with me and how I am, which is that I feel really passionate that I want to live my fullest life and that I have the right to grow and experience and give as much as I want to. <laughs> like I, I don't want adoption to be the thing that defines me and holds me back. So there was a way that when she and I start she and I started having conversations that I could feel some kind of transcendence that she has experienced that I also have experienced and an access to a lot of joy. Like most mornings I wake up pretty happy these days and it hasn't always been that way for sure. Mm-hmm. So um so the concept behind the adoptee retreats was how do we share something about what we've experienced about like moving from it having us adoption, it having us to us mm-hmm. having it. And then mm-hmm. feeling more like the world is our palette and we get to do whatever we want to do. And so the resonance with her actually felt strengthening to my system. Like I, I could even do more of that. So we had our first retreat in February and I, I had the flu the whole time although I was there and it couldn't have gone better. It was just crazy. Like the group just landed so quickly and people see, seemed to feel safe really quickly. And what I couldn't, I, I started thinking to myself, adoptees are kind of cooler than most people. Like there was a flexibility and a humor and a wildness and a willing to kind of <laughs> be crazy just dive right in and be yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we skipped like steps one through a hundred and boom there we were so uh, what was funny was even though we were the facilitators of it both of us have been just reeling from the the power of being 12 adoptees in a room with really not 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 the interest in going back and being in a place where we feel victimized and stuck but really opening the world so we have a larger larger access to the larger world and it, it just happens so beautifully so i'm still recovering from from like oh my gosh the world expanded and how do i how do i even manage this expansion because growing growing can be stressful too you know uh-huh. healing can be stressful too because our, our lives are often not set up for 
for growing. And then we grow and everybody around us is like, wait a minute, you know, who are you now? And there's like mm-hmm. this pressure to change back. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind sharing, what, what, what type of structure, what type of themes mm. did you find most helpful during a retreat like that? Because mm-hmm. I know that when I spoke with Anne, one of the things she mentioned was that, you know, you guys didn't dive into the story that much. Yes. Um, which I, I yeah. found interesting because that seems to be, well, your story is the conversation starter in yeah. any instance in, in today's in today's world. So once you don't use that, then communication probably becomes uh, interesting, you know, slightly, slightly different. So I was just yeah. curious to know, like, what did you guys do? What did you guys found helpful yeah. out of a retreat like that? <laughs> You know, um, what was funny was five of the 10 people who attended were therapists. So they were, every, they told us later, every, everybody said they were waiting for us to do that whole, what's your name, tell us your story, and go, you know, get oriented, basically. But we we didn't do it that way. And I don't want to tell you how we did it because it's a surprise in a way. Like, right. like, like you know, we're having another one and we're having two more scheduled this year. But we, we, we did something that kind of... Um, put the story in a container sort of off to the side. Uh And then we wanted to find out who are people because we didn't want the story to dominate people's sense of selves, which is really what a lot of people are plagued with anyway, is how do Uh I even, I'm suffocating from this story that never seems to end, you know, Uh and this nervous system that's all screwed up from the trauma. So we had a way of, of doing that, that, that was, that was successful. And, um, what happened was a whole bunch of vitality and energy infused the group. And then, um, we, you know, that was sort of the first night we, we all got kind of oriented together. We did this, this thing of around the story, but we did a lot of talking about the brain and like our default network, which is a, a system in the brain that just goes around and around. It's based on the past and it's what we've already lived and experienced and all the things we're afraid of because what we've experienced. And it's sort of that negative self-talk that mm. it's hard to get away from. And then the other system in the brain that's, that's independent from that is the direct experience network. And we did a lot of work with people staying in the direct experience network, which is in the present moment, and it involves curiosity and involves being in our bodies and in our five senses and also connecting with each other. So we we had some activities where people were kind of, I don't want to say forced into the direct experience because it's actually so joyful to be in one's direct mm-hmm. experience. That's where healing happens. It doesn't happen on the default network. We're not going to heal there. So we we wanted to avoid that as much as possible, and it worked. And so what started happening is people started getting happier and happier and more connected and more connected. And then by the third day, we were able to kind of go back in and, and look at our stories in a little bit of a different way. And, and then we did a, on the fifth of the fourth and final day, we did something that was very like, like resourcing, like helping people really connect to um, strengths they have and, and being seen by others in their strengths so that they, had something to hold on to as they went back into their lives. But then uh-huh. we, we have a private Facebook page and people have just been thriving in so many ways and taking new risks and, and feeling differently about themselves than they did, feeling more expansive and feeling like they have more choices and possibilities in their lives. So it's continued, which is really 
exciting and amazing. That's awesome. That's great to hear yeah. that. I, I love that what you just shared because the structure that we've been actually putting together for our upcoming sem seminar is it's kind of, it's somewhat similar and it's similar in the way because um, so the way that it's set up is that every single speaker, there are going to be seven speakers there and each one will have a chance to share on a particular topic that's relevant to your life. Mm -hmm. So whether that means, you know, finding your voice or making that commitment towards a thing that you've wanted for a very long time. And the goal of it is to be very practical. So one of the things that I've noticed um, after being to hundreds and hundreds of different events is that you oftentimes sit through a presentation and, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal speaker. There's a lot of inspiration. But the one thing that was missing was that action. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. I've, I, here I am. I, I've learned this or I, I heard this inspiring story. I've learned mm -hmm. some, um, some, you know, challenges and things that the speaker went through. But now what? What mm -hmm. do I do with it now? And mm -hmm. so what we decided to do is change that script and actually, um, so after every speaker, there will be a break breakthrough session. And during that session, people will be able to explore a particular topic that will be addressed by the speaker. So that way, people will be able to dig deeper and deeper within themselves and hopefully will find those either motivators or things that have been stopping them and, mm. and go, really go after the things they do want out of this life. Yeah, that's neat. I'm coming and I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that would be a good experience. It'll be our, uh, our first of many. But, you know, it, it's something that I've, I've, wanted, I've been wanting to do for quite some time. And um, so when we, when we started building all this, we, we started overcoming odds with just the stories. And um, there, there were a lot of there was a lot of interesting feedback that we received in return. Um, some of those things, you know, people used to just say that, oh, it's just a blog. Um, it, it doesn't have any meaning. Like, what kind of impact is it having? And what was what we started to notice is that something like that, it's much more than a blog. It's it's therapy. It's therapy mm -hmm. when you're able to sit down and um, go through your experience and try and um, recall as much of it as possible. Mm -hmm. So when we started, to, we started to build it like that. And then the next logical step from there in our minds was, okay, you know, let, how do we turn this into uh, in person? How, how mm -hmm. can we impact people like that? Because that will evoke uh, different type of emotions versus when you're behind a computer and you're writing your story or, you're writing about right. a challenge that you overcame. Yeah, yeah, it, it just enhances the the connection, and mm -hmm. um, it seems to me, that it seems from the retreat we had that uh, that adoptees are are so hungry to have meaningful connections that make sense and to experience being in a room with somebody else where they do get to skip all those steps and just have a mutual understanding of a baseline of what it what it feels like to be orphaned or adopted and mm -hmm. um it it seems like that connection is so healing in and of itself 
Yeah. Like it's an experience. It's almost like I was describing it to somebody as being like, what's that thing they have at spas? Like there's zero gravity tank or something Mm -hmm. where you, you don't feel a sense of any gravity at all in your body. And that's what it felt like in our group was, and I imagine it's going to feel that way in Austin at your, at your event. Like when there's that, that shared understanding, then there's just this ease because then no one's fighting to be believed or be understood mm-hmm. or for the proportions of one's story to be understood for what they were. It's just already understood. Yep. And then, and then something new can happen that's super meaningful and special. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I, compl- I, I agree with you. I think, and I think that's what's, um, what's needed. And, you know, you bring up a good point regarding relationships and connections in many of the cases that I have, come across and myself included it's so much harder to form those relationship relationships because you know in my instance there were the trust was broken so many times mm-hmm. so right. now when you form these new relationships like for me I almost um, I almost have a structure in place as far as this is like I put um, you know like mile markers within the relationship mm. and I try and okay after this time um I can you know do this or like after this like this is how much trust um establishes within it so I it, and it's it's harder and it's it's also different from um one person to the next some mm-hmm. people may never be able to do that others may be able to say well you know it, it happened um and something in the past I don't have to live in the past. I can just be in the present and go through it again and see what mm-hmm. type of experience and opportunity will create once again. Yeah, yeah. Adoptees and trust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, fi- final thought for today's episode. Uh-huh. And it is in a situation where odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to. Mm-hmm. Okay. One principle is I believe everything's interconnected, meaning I am part of a whole. So um, I, I, I really try to experience that sense of connection to others as much as I can because I feel more well and I actually think it's true when I do. And so when I start to see myself and feel myself to be this isolated, broken entity, I know I'm in the wrong direction. So, so I try to expand into feeling the sense, a sense of interconnection. And that, that just means that what I do affects you and what you do affects me and that, um, when I'm for you, being mm-hmm. for you is being for me, and you being for me is you being for mm-hmm. you. So, like that. Um, that's one. Let me think for a minute. You might have to <laughs> edit here. <laughs> Hang on. Um, well, I'm mean, like I've said many times. I really believe in, ex- in a sense of expansion, and I mean like visual expansion, mental expansion, relational expansion. When I was doing the cancer thing, I really 
wanted to see myself as part of a whole huge group of people that were undergoing cancer treatments at the same time because I that 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 expanded view a it's true but b it just it was feeling part of which is makes me stronger and would make them stronger if they know I was feeling like that with you know thinking about them oh generosity is a huge principle for me like if I'm feeling stuck or uh, could go downhill or could go uphill mm -hmm. if I can move into a state of generosity that's going to help me feel better so if I can think of something nice I could do for somebody that would be authentic not not just a formulaic kind of thing or a you know but a real thing that I could do for somebody else mm -hmm. I, I always feel better so generosity is huge um Humor is really important to me. I don't sound very funny right now, but but it's actually a really big part of my life. The humor, um, and also remembering that there are always multiple possibilities. If I start to think that there's no possibilities and that the world is closing in on me, I also know I'm I'm getting distorted, like I'm getting confused. So I like to think about multiple possibilities, and then travel is a a lifeline for me. Thank you all for listening for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, I highly recommend that you subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes along with featured stand up and speak up stories and ways you can be involved with overcoming odds. Once again, Thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.